Welcome to the HDFS Careers Podcast, the podcast featuring informal conversations with family science majors about their professional journeys. My name is Erica Jordan. I am super excited to be returning after a long hiatus due to several unexpected personal events and professional responsibilities. Please be aware that this episode was recorded during 2021, so some references to current events or the professionals' lives might be dated. Regardless, I'm sharing this interview with you because it still contains a wealth of insight and inspiration. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I am extra excited to share a special edition of the HDFS Careers Podcast. For this episode, I interviewed Dr. Maureen Blankemeyer and Dr. Kathleen Walker, who are both faculty at Kent State University and who are both well-known researchers in the area of family science careers. Dr. Blankemeyer earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Bowling Green State University and a master's degree in family relations and child development and PhD in human environmental sciences, both from Oklahoma State University. She is currently an associate professor at Kent State University. Dr. Walker earned a bachelor's degree in fine arts pre-art therapy from Kansas State University, a master's of science in art therapy from Emporia State University, and a PhD in family life education and consultation from Kansas State University. She is currently an associate professor at Kent State University. During this interview, they discuss their own professional journeys and their experiences as first-generation college students. They also provide advice for students gleaned from working with many students over the course of their careers. As is true for all interviewees on this podcast, Dr. Blankemeyer and Dr. Walker's views are their own as private citizens and do not reflect the views of their current, former, or future employers. Without further ado, here is their interview. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Walker and Dr. Blankemeyer. Hello. Thank you for having us. I am so excited to have you all here with me today. Um, I have to say, I have to go on like my super fan tangent for a minute um, because in terms of the podcast and revamping my own careers in HDFS course at the University of Houston, you all, um, both of you at Kent State, you have been very inspirational to me. Um, I feel like you are leaders in the discussion about careers for students, um, uh, alums of HDFS, and you've just done a lot of cool work in this area, both personally with your students and then also um, just kind of in the broader profession. Um, So I am super excited to hear your thoughts about the status of careers today. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with me. Of course. I, I always feel so excited to talk to you because it's so, you're so kind and so flattering. Oh, great. <laughs> similar interests that we do as well. Yes, yes. I know it's, it's rare to find someone who like has your similar obsession. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, let's start off. Um, I, I just want you to introduce yourselves to um, the podcast audience. And I'm hoping that we have students and faculty and professionals alike who are maybe listening. Um, But if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, what your role is, and kind of how you found the field of HDFS. Kathy, you wanna go ahead? Sure. (laughs) Um, I knew she was gonna make me start. Um, So, I, uh, I'm Dr. Kathy Walker and am at uh, Kent State University. I'm an associate professor there. Uh, the class 
that I teach that really helped me get interested in this work of um, kind of better understanding HDFS careers is a class called professional development. And in that class, and it sounds pretty similar to the class uh, that you teach, Erica, and that is um, we kind of try to help them prepare both for their practicum and, and or internship and, uh, and post-graduation paths, whether that's graduate school or um, a, a career with their undergraduate degree. And so they do things like resumes and cover letters and that kind of thing. The other part of what I teach is um, building family strengths um, at the undergraduate level and then family theories at the, at the graduate level. And um, I have been at Kent State um, almost 20 years, which is incredible to me. It goes by so fast. But my path to get to Kent State was um, somewhat unusual in that I started out as an undergraduate art major. I was um, at Kansas State University as an art student and was taking studio classes um, and, but was kind of trying to figure out what am I gonna do um, with my art degree and did I really want to try to make it as a professional artist? Was that something that interested me and it, and I really wasn't sure it was. And I had taken general psychology and my best friend and roommate was a psych major. And so I had taken a couple classes with her and I think she actually stumbled across um, art therapy in the catalog and Kansas State didn't have a master's program in art therapy, but it did have an undergraduate concentration in, in their art department uh, for art therapy. And so I was able to um, kind of take a pre-art therapy curriculum as an undergraduate and then uh, really fell in love with it. And in high school, I'd actually worked um, kind of as a tutor or mentor in some art classes with kids who were in um, special education and, and being kind of mainstreamed into the art classes. And so I, I worked with those as kind of extra credit uh, during, my, during my high school years. And so it just resonated with me doing art with people um, to help improve their lives. That really resonated with me. And so I went on to get my master's in art therapy uh, at Emporia State University um, which is another university in Kansas and uh, did a lot of work with a lot of different populations, including some parenting education groups, um, which was really interesting to me and did a little research while I was in my master's program with that parenting education group and using art-based techniques with, with parents and really learned a lot from that experience. It wasn't super long, but just a really great experience. And then um, became an art therapist and loved it, loved doing clinical work. I worked at a psych hospital and um, worked with a variety of um, individuals in terms of diagnoses and ages. Uh, and I was really loved the work, but I often, kept thinking, especially when I did family art therapy, was thinking, wow, you know, we're, I'm reaching these folks after some pretty significant challenges that they're facing and really just kept thinking, isn't there something we could do before they got to this point 
um, where they're, one of them was hospitalized and they're all there for family art therapy and started looking around and, and missed, missed academia, missed um, that research component that I had had in my master's program. And so started looking around at doctoral programs, assuming that I would always go back to art therapy. But I found family life education at my alma mater and so went to Kansas State University for my doctoral work and um, did family life education. I think it was called family life education and consultation at that time and did my PhD and then started interviewing and I, I did interview for um, an art therapy position at the time but then also interviewed for positions in HDFS and Kent State was hiring and um, I went there and was just delighted by the people I met. I came back and said, these are my people and I really, really hope they call me. <laughs> and I was lucky enough that they did. So that's how I got here. That is such an interesting path. Yeah, I had no idea that you had this career in uh, as an art therapist previously or that you um, started out as an art major that how cool what was your uh, specialty when you were majoring in art like what medium did you like to work in uh drawing mostly we had to take all of the studio courses um <laughs> and so I did multiple years in painting and ceramics but um drawing was my primary um uh concentration area besides art therapy and then when we did our my <laughs> we did our senior shows um and I'm saying we, because I met my spouse and he and I did our senior shows together. Wow. Um, and uh, I, he was a sculpture major. And so most of my artwork was actually, we worked a lot together and were these kind of wooden boxes where of it, that I kind of filled things with sort of, sort of three-dimensional collages kind of work. But, and I still do some art. I still, that's that's the space that I'm in right now is my attic studio. And I still do try to do some art, but not as much as I would like to. Um, yes, do yes. Stuff, but yeah. That is really neat. And so um, I'm sure that that helped you kind of enrich your experience when you did start your work as a faculty member, because then you could tell students about that, your experience working with those clients as well. Absolutely. And I think, I think that you're the first person that I've heard of who was engaging in art therapy with families. You know, like there'd be one oh. person who was the primary client and you'd bring in the whole family. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a unique um, kind of program uh, that they were trying to do at this psychiatric hospital. Um, and, and of course that's been, you know, over, you know, I, I guess 20, or 25 years ago, I'd have to do the math. But um, so that hot, even that psychiatric hospital, that system has changed tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, but they had at the time, they had a campus with expressive therapies, and they had a day program, a residential treatment program, an inpatient hospital, and um, an outpatient uh, and community-based, actually, uh, services too. So we had just a lot of different kinds of um, programs that I was doing art therapy. And so it was an incredibly enriching experience. Uh, I did get placed into, and this is, this may be of interest to people because I talk to students about this a lot. I got placed into a supervisory position 
very soon after I graduated, um, uh, uh, not graduated, but after I took the position and uh, it was probably too soon. <laughs> and mm. it, it, it was, I did not enjoy that part of the work. I liked doing the clinical work and I might've stayed as an art therapist for longer if I had not gone into that supervisory role and was overseeing and had to deal with personnel issues between recreational therapists and other folks that I really, I didn't want to be, I wanted them to solve their own problems. I was right. patient and not the, it was not to my strengths to be working as an administrator and in that, in that role. It's a and very different ball game. Yes, it is. It is <laughs> very yeah. different. I mean, you're, you're spending your day in a very different way um, right. as opposed right. to actually directly working with a client. Yeah, and I, I was still doing clinical work, um, but it was just this sort of added layer of um, requirements or tasks that I had to do that was not an enjoyable part of the job. So I probably did start looking into going back to get my doctorate sooner than I might have otherwise. Got you. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's almost like, yeah, that's an added weight. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It was for me, you know, I know that there, and I've had students who go almost directly into that administrative role, you know, after being just out for a little while and they're excellent at it because right. it suits their skills. And it's just part of that process of kind of learning what your strengths are. Yes, basically. that's a very good point. Yeah, you always have to learn what's the, the right fit for you. I also think it's really inspiring for people to know because I think people think that they have to pick one thing and stick with it for their, their, their whole life <laughs> until they right. retire. Um, and I'm sure that it's inspiring for people to know that you've had not just one fulfilling career that you're currently in, but also another kind of fulfilling career area that you were in previously. And that, you know, both of them are enriching um, to your overall professional experience. So, yeah, I, I definitely think um, those you know, there, for me, there's so much connection between in the, within the path that I took, and I still use a lot of art in my classroom. And so the things that I learned as an undergraduate art major, I value those things so much. And they're so much a part of who I am and, and what I, what I do now. And, and I, I hopefully can, I talk to my students about just remembering that, that it doesn't, you know, what you end up doing, there's still so much value from your undergraduate degree and what you're learning that you'll keep using it, whatever that becomes in the oh, end. Yes. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> it's so nice to hear other people saying the same thing. <laughs> uh, I try to remind students of that. I, I don't ever want to hear, I never use my degree. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> right, right. It's always going to inform what you're doing. Um, okay, let's shift gears and hear from you, Maureen. Can you give us some background? Sure, but let's continue to talk about Kathy for her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> because there was something I wanted to point out that she already kind of did, but I wanted to mention that some of the early research that Kathy and I did together back in, oh gosh, I think it was early 2000s, uh, was in it. In, was looking at children's perceptions of peace and political violence. And one of the things we did was integrate one of Kathy's interests, which is we did qualitative research and asked the children to draw a picture of peace and to draw a picture of war. And then we analyzed that. So again, kind of going back to what you both said, 
There are so many things that our students learn that will translate to other aspects of their career that you just never know. And, and Kathy's art therapy background definitely came through for us, not only in her teaching, but in our research as well. Oh my goodness. I think I remember reading that article. It was <laughs> fascinating. I am pretty certain that I read it. Toward it was a long time ago. Yeah, but it would have been toward um, during my graduate school experience. That is so cool. <laughs> I remember it. I, you know, I didn't connect the dots that you all were um, the authors, but I still remember that article because it was, it was such a creative approach. Um, so how neat. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. And then I'll also point out that I'm hearing Kathy talk about her background and it reminds you of how much we have in common because I grew, she and I are both first generation college students. And even though we grew up in different states, I grew up in a very rural area in Ohio. And I grew up in a large family and I did my undergraduate in psychology. My undergraduate degree is psych psychology bachelor's in, uh, from Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And then when I was looking for grad schools, well, let me back up before I go to grad school. In my junior or senior year, one of my sisters was at the same university. She's a little bit older than me, a few years older. And she says, oh, you have to take this class. It's about marriages and families. It's a fun class. And the instructor's great and yada, yada. So I'll spare you the details about that, the class, other than to say, I have been teaching the equivalent of that class for 25 years now at Kent awesome. State University. Yeah. So I really liked the class. It was a, the equivalent of an HDFS class. I I'm pretty sure it was called something different back in the, it would have been the eighties. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> so, but it, it really inspired me. And so when I went to look for grad schools, I applied to some psych programs, but I was really interested in the um, Oklahoma State offered a program on family relations and child development is what it was called. And having grown up in a large family and just knowing the impact of the family on my family, all my life, that really drew me there. And that's where I went and did my master's and um, doctoral degrees was at Oklahoma State in their family program. Family Relations and Child Development was my master's degree. And then Human Environmental Sciences is what the doctoral degree was called back then. And then I went straight to Kent State and I just finished up my 25th year. So I, unlike Kathy, I kind of went right through school. I didn't, I did some um, work through my assistantship with parenting education, another commonality that Kathy and I have, we both did a little bit of family life education, parenting education. I worked with um, teen moms in a parenting education program, but it was for my assistantship, yeah. my graduate assistantship. So that's how I ended up where I am. I'm also a certified family life educator. And right now I'm an associate professor in human development and family studies at Kent State University. I love that. I, oh, there's so many things I want to, I want to delve deeper into. First of all, I mean, just pointing out the fact that something I know I tell my students and you might tell your students as well, um, like there are multiple paths to get where you're going and you might actually end up in similar places, but taking different paths. And like, I think you all together both illustrate that 
I mean, even your degrees are in different areas mm-hmm. um, and you kind of took a different path and you're ultimately um, both faculty members in the same program now um, working, uh, engaged in work that has some overlap. Um, so I think that that's a really great illustration, but I also wanted to hear more about your point that you all were both first-generation college students. And um, could you speak a little bit more about that and just kind of how that might have, I don't know, influenced your decision? What, what was the drive, um, the, uh, the push for you to pursue college um, when you didn't really necessarily have that example uh, previously in your um, family history? Kathy and I will have a little bit different experience, even though we're both first gen. My mother was the biggest influence. Um, She always was learn, learn. She's a lifelong learner, reader. And she always said, you know, you go on and you get your college degree, you get your graduate degree, and then you get married. (laughs) Well, here I am many, many moons later, and I'm an overachiever because I have still yet to get married. (laughs) But so for me, it was 100% my mother and she talked about that it's going to open up so many more avenues for you. And so she was basically wanting better for me, obviously, than she herself had, but in terms of of the education and the career opportunities. But I did have older siblings and um, I, let's see, two of them had gone to college before I did. So I had a little bit of an advantage there over Kathy in that I could sit and talk to my brother and say, how do I choose my major? What do you mean you could walk on campus and not recognize people all the way walking to your class and just that kind of stuff. But Kathy's situation is a little bit different. I'll let her tell you that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's somewhat similar in that my parents were um, very much wanting, we, there was just no question that we would go on to college. Um, and the driving force was the idea that we would do better than they did economically. Um, that That was for my dad, especially was just you know, of course you're going to college and that way you can have a life better than, than we've been able to, to provide. Um, and so that it was just, that's what we were going to do. And I was, I feel like I was incredibly fortunate in that even when I chose art as my major, my parents were still fully supportive. Now they were really, concerned. (laughs) Um, They did talk quite a bit about, um, you know, is there a job or are you going to have a job after that? Which (laughs) I know a lot of HDFS students can probably relate to, to some extent Uh, uh, in HDFS case, because a lot of times parents don't really know what it is in art because it's like, well, there's, you know, what, what are you going to do as an artist? How are you going to make a living kind of thing? And uh, so they were, quite relieved when I said I was going to become an art therapist. It did mean I was going to have to go to more school, but for them hearing art therapist, that sounded like a job to them. And so that, that was really, really good. And both my brothers who are older than I am, um, tried to, tried to go to school. It didn't stick for them. At least initially they did both eventually go back and get their undergraduate degrees, um, later on after they were married and had kids. But, um, 
but I, but I really was at university. I would call my parents. Should I drop this course? Should I, you know, and, and they just were like, you do what you think is best. And I know other first generation students have gone through this too, where you're like, I don't know what's best. <laughs> and, right. and my parents had always been really helpful to me. Um, and so at that point I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and, um, but yeah, you just kind of muddle through it. And, and my best friend and roommate again, um, had parents who had been to college. And uh, so she was, she was a really good resource for me in terms of, in terms of making those kinds of decisions. Um, as well. So I, I looked out that way. But I do remember when I, you know, graduate school was just never something they even really even knew about, I don't think. I, I don't, you know, I don't think they had any real, you know, I mean, maybe they certainly never talked to me about it, I guess. And so, but when I went and got my master's, they understood that because, okay, I was going to become an art therapist. But then when I told them I was going to go back for my PhD, my mom especially was like, why, why are you doing this? Because they felt like I had, you know, achieved what I had set out to achieve, which is I had this good job as an art therapist and why, why mess with a good thing basically. Um, But they were very, very supportive overall in terms of my education and, and um, super proud of me um when I when I got my PhD a little little sad that I was moving all the way to Ohio to to work but um but very proud of me in that in that way yeah I think um both of your stories kind of point to this with Maureen with your mother particularly being this lifelong learner Mm -hmm. um and then of course like instilling that in you and your siblings and then Kathy with your parents clearly having a strong value for education as a means to, um, um, to kind of um, improve as they saw it, you know, and yes. kind of improve your um, one's life. Um, this speaks to how, yes, you can instill these values and, um, and people can be, um, they can be passionate learners even outside of the, the, the typical degree process. Um, and so they can still instill that but um, even if they have that value, I know my father, I was similar. My dad's in this, my father and my mother, they both actually did attend college. Um, but I was the first one on a, like one side of the family to, um, I believe, earn a graduate degree, especially a PhD. Um, and Kathy, when you said the kind of, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's very clear, like, even if they have that value for education and they instill that passion for learning, which my parents definitely did as well, um, like yours did, um, still when it comes to the nuts and bolts of like, oh my goodness, like how do I register? And I remember I actually declined an assistantship offer when I, I first received an assistantship offer in graduate school because I really just didn't understand what it was, to be honest. Wow. <laughs> that saved me is my... Um, I think that my major professor, I think she was a little backed up on her voicemails and she might not have gotten that initial voicemail of me declining. And so she reached out again through some other way <laughs> and just sort of explained. And uh, because I, I really hadn't, that just goes to show you how little I knew about the process. I just knew that, hey, this program sounds really interesting. These classes sound amazing. I want to go and get this graduate degree, but in terms of the nuts and bolts and the mechanics and the logistics, you can feel a little lost. Um, I do remember my dad though, like similar to your parents, he was like my biggest cheerleader. 
and would come down. I don't care if I got the smallest award, he would come into town for it to see me get it. <laughs> and, wow. and he just would tell me, stick with, stick with Mary Liz, stick with Mary Liz, which was my major professor, my advisor. <laughs> He's like, this kind of idea that I don't really know how to guide you in this process, but I see that she's genuine. So you stick with her. <laughs> she's going to tell you what to do, <laughs> but just very encouraging. So there's so many different ways that our families um, and our community can encourage us even if they quite, they can't quite understand why we're going back to more school or why we're stressing about a huge dissertation that is due a year from now. <laughs> okay, so um, kind of related to this, um, to the student experience, what do you see like in your own experience in working with students within our field um, specifically those who are majoring in HDFS or a similar major like child and family studies. We go by so many names. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the unique strengths and challenges that you see related to pursuing a career in this field? Kathy, I feel like you touched on this maybe a little bit with um, when you were discussing your parents' reaction to the art. Is there going to be a job now? What are you going to do with that? (laughs) Um, And as you said, I feel like students in our field get that question a lot. So that automatically points to maybe one particular challenge, but what are some other strengths and challenges that you see um, in this field for students? Yeah, I I think um, sort of being, being able to articulate what they know and what they can do is key. And the students I think that have been the most successful after graduation are those that kind of leave with this idea of, okay, here's what I've learned. And so this is, and I can apply these things to this, this, and this. Um, But I think, and, and, and they've got lots of skills and knowledge to choose from so they can really tailor it to so many different positions but so that's a real strength of HDFS and what they're coming out with Um, but I think it's also the big challenge in that there's and of course it's been said before certainly uh, by lots of people um, there it's such it is there is so much breadth that uh, that that can be really overwhelming and then hard to explain when it's not as specific position um, that you're going into. And it's it's actually not unsimilar to other degree programs like psychology or sociology or communications, where there's not a particular job at the at the end of it that they're going into. It's not like, you know, being an accountant, uh, being in accounting and then becoming an accountant. Um, and or even being in education and becoming a teacher or an educator. It's 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 not the um, it's an academic program that gives you a lot of skills and, and knowledge, but you have to be able to talk about what those are. And that can be challenging. Absolutely. Maureen, what are your thoughts? I wanted, uh, yeah, and I, I wanted to add um, something to what Kathy said. She and I were talking about this the other day. In some majors, Students don't ever have to explain, oh, this is my major psychology, and and they don't have their loved ones saying, what is that? Like a lot of our students who are in the family field, the the human development field, again, like you said, Erica, whatever it's called at any respective university, 
But by the same, I'm going to flip that on on its um, flip it upside down, because one of the good things is that because our field is so broad, I think a lot. I hope I know it happens at Kent State, and it sounds like it happens where you are as well at the University of Houston. But I I would like to think faculty in our programs are constantly. Um, grilling their students to be able to articulate to others, this is what we do. So you psych students, they may literally get their, I shouldn't pick on psych, even though I am a psych undergrad, <laughs> but people coming from different majors, they may not have to explain their field to other people. So when they go out and get a job, depending on what their major is, sociology or whatever, they may be like, hmm, what am I going to do? But because our field is not, it's still, I call it in its adolescence. It's not in its infancy anymore. It's probably in its adolescence or more, but we're teaching our students and students are learning. This is what we are. This is what we can do. These are populations we can work with. So hopefully, ideally, they're able to articulate that to others and hopefully it'll help them to also find jobs and then also I have found, and I'm sure Kathy has, and Erica, you probably have as well, that students will come back after job interviews and they'll say, oh my gosh, I just went on this interview and the person interviewing me said, this is exactly the kind of person that we are looking for for this job. We didn't know this major existed. Mm. So hopefully our students are able to go out and articulate that because they've been taught. You're going to have to educate people what you can do. And related to that, another strength of our field, I think, is that our alumni have a pick, they have their pick of populations to work with. So some people in certain fields, you know, they're always going to be working with, I don't know, like just data or something like that. And I chose to be a professor. So I'm working primarily with college age student, which it's a good thing. I love that population. <laughs> and our students can go out and they can maybe take a job working uh, with older adults, or they might work with domestic violence survivors, or they may work with youth. And so they have a wide variety of populations they can work with. And if they've are you think this is not really my area you know I find it too difficult to work with say children who are have experienced maltreatment then I'm going to try working with these kids over here at this camp um, that you know fosters resilience or something like that and then yes that's my niche yeah. so I think that's one of the great strengths is we have so many populations our, our alumni can work with that's a good point yeah it's it's more difficult, I think, to become pigeonholed because it is a broad field. So, you know, you the flip side is that you are able to actually communicate value in a wide range of different um, areas of practice. Mm -hmm. I, I think as I, long as you know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think our students um, also, and I and I don't really know how this. Um, I don't have any data to say how this compares to other um, majors that we've been discussing, but I feel like in our classes, the faculty are pretty committed to helping them in like skills-based practice, like applied experiences. The practicum, of course, is huge. That's a, that's a big part of it, or the or internship, um, whatever it might be called. Um, but 
but also just within classes where they get to practice interviewing each other or um, designing activities or for families or, you know, whatever it might be, but just, you know, coming up with a program or, you know, writing a portion of a grant, but actually doing some uh, very skills-based activities that I think gives them things to draw on when they are trying to describe what they know and what they can do because they've done it. They've at least had a little taste of it in, in those experiences. And so I think that's another real strength um, for our students. That's a good point. Yes. I think the vast majority of um, the majors in our field, I'm just guessing, but I think that they do require at least an internship. But yes, I think that faculty, we're, we're constantly trying to be as creative as we can to try and generate ways to make it very applied. Of course, that becomes more of a challenge um, in the larger classes. But even within the larger classes, I know that I'm always trying to help them apply the concepts to a real world family situation or, you know, <laughs> one of our classes like, um, they're kind of mimicking, come, uh, making a decision, a policy decision. So they have to work together and hear different perspectives, like hear each other's perspectives and come to some sort of resolution. Like just trying to, to, to apply the knowledge. I think that's a good point. Yes, yeah. Kathy, you were talking the other day also, something I can't remember exactly how you said it because you're <laughs> way more articulate than I am, but something about working with the, in the, within the family context but also the community. I think you were talking about the uniqueness of it. Yeah, I do think that's something that makes HDFS um, or family science um, unique in that um, family, of course, is a big context that we talk about a lot, but we also talk about other contexts like the community context or the school context or the work context and kind of help students understand you know, individual and family life within those broader contexts. And I don't know that there are other majors that really make those connections at least as explicitly. Um, and, you know, I'm probably being unfair to, to those other majors to some extent, but um, in my biased opinion, it does, it does feel like HDFS makes those connections um, explicit for students and helps, helps them understand the influences that go both ways, you know, the individual on those systems and then those systems on, on that individual. Ron well, Brenner would be proud, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was just thinking of Bronson Brenner. <laughs> yes, and I mean, just to say, it's at the heart of our, it's at the core, it's at the heart and core of our discipline. Um, yeah, you just can't separate that um, in, within our field. And so I think that you're right. I, I feel like our field um, really places that at its, at its core um, in a way that, yeah, I have to agree with you. I'm biased as well. But, I mean, but my background is also psychology. Um, but I don't think it's as explicit in psychology. And with sociology, we know there's a little bit more of a focus on some of these other larger systems um, mm -hmm. and maybe not as much at the more micro level. So um, of course, you know, we could have people write in and tell us because of course there are exceptions to every rule. Somebody out there might be doing it, but, <laughs> but at our field, it, it's at the core. Um, I think that's a great point. So you all um, published in 2013, this really cool publication that I love and I have my students read every term um, called Where Are They Now? The Results of an HDFS Alumni Survey. Um, and so in it, 
you survey alumni from Kent, um, from Kent State and just, you know, answer the question, you know, were they able to find jobs? <laughs> what those jobs, you know, what were those jobs? Where are these um, HDFS alums now? Can you tell us a little bit about um, kind of that study? I know it was a while ago, but, you know, just a, just a, an, in a nutshell. And then um, tell us if you think that anything has changed um, since the time of that publication. Yeah, so those are big questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it has been a while since we, we published that and we were just talking about the idea of, of doing it again. And it, um, it was a survey uh, study and we um, basically surveyed our alumni and I, I picked a period of time, um, selfishly, I think, just from the time that I had been at Kent State. <laughs> and so um, they were mostly alumni that I had would have had in classes. Um, so I think it was like a 10 year kind of, not, not even quite 10 year, maybe more like seven years um, where and then we asked them a series of questions about what they what they were doing, where they were at, um, whether they felt like it was related to HDFS or not, um, whether you know some basic things like whether they did a practicum, that kind of thing. Because um, at the time we did not require uh, the practicum, uh, and uh, I. I'm, I'm, help me out, Maureen, I'm drawing a book. And some of the other questions, like the field, we asked about fields of practice where, where they were, what kind of work they were doing, whether it was in domestic violence or mental health or addictions or child and youth or education or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that you also, and I say you, because Kathy's the one who actually, she helped, is this part of the interview one too, Kathy, or is that? They were done at the same time, but they were two different um, studies. That wasn't part of our, okay, I can't remember, because we presented on the interview, so I'll try to stay away from that, but we, we did talk about different um, salaries, which, you know, that kind of goes back to one of the challenges, right. even though some of our students were able to find um, positions with good salaries, especially, you know, more likely the ones who'd been out of uh, their under their college degree for longer. And then the ones who went on to graduate school, I cannot remember exactly, but I'm assuming they were the ones who were earning a little bit more as well. Um, but then also, I think uh, one of the big things that probably still holds true is the wide variety of jobs that our students have, populations they work with, but Kathy and I were talking about how we think that there are what, because we will, Kathy, we will do the follow-up um, <laughs> yes. study on this. And I think some of the things we're going to find out, among others, is that there, there probably was a, a lot more of our students have probably, or I should say alumni, will probably say that their job has been impacted by the opioid crisis or other drugs um, that has really gotten huge since 2013. Obviously the pandemic, and we've done some recent research with that as well uh, in terms of the effects it's had on our students or alumni. Um, Kathy, I'll let you pop in if you have anything. I don't wanna keep yammering. 
Yeah, yeah, I was um, kind of thinking back to the article, um, but then also sort of things what have changed. And I, um, I do think there's definitely things that have changed since 2013. And the pandemic, of course, is the most recent. And that's, a, that's a big one. Um, but also, I think, I think, and we, we kind of had a big discussion about this recently. And that is the idea that we think more students are actually opting to go to graduate school, but it's not even just the more, the greater numbers as it's like a wider variety of students are seeing graduate school as an option, I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas yes. in, in, when I first started at Kent State, I don't, I think there were some, you know, there were students who thought, oh, you know, I'm a really good student and, you know, I, I know I want to pursue higher, you know, uh, a graduate education, and those students went on to go to graduate school. Not not always, obviously, but that that was kind of my perception, and we think that that's changed. Whereas now there are students who are seeing, um, just this this is an option for me to go on to get my master's degree, whether that's you know in HDFS or counseling or social work or whatever whatever it might be. So that was one of the things that we talked about. But then also a big piece that I think has changed is especially in terms of the job search um, and that is social media uh, has it just had an enormous impact even since you know 2013 and the actual data was collected in 2011. So um, yeah. certainly I, I mean I used social media at the time to uh, recruit uh, participants in the survey to do the survey or respondents um, but the but social media on the actual job search and in just professionalism as a whole has had an enormous impact as well that's a really good point yeah there's a couple other things I wanted to add as well I and I think that and Kathy does too because we've discussed this we both think and certainly hope that the, H, the workforce, our workforce is becoming more aware of systemic racism and social justice issues. And I think kind of adding to that, I, I see in my classes, our students are so much more sophisticated than even five years ago when it comes to the LG, LGBTQ plus population mm -hmm. as well. So I'm, I'm guessing that that is working its way into the workforce of greater awareness, um, hopefully more than just awareness. But, and I think Kathy, you talked about mental health issues. Yes, yes, I think, uh, yeah, so many things really I, that we, we could cover because <clears throat> I do think students themselves are more open about uh, mental health challenges that they personally have had and are more aware of how that might um, impact them. I think we could certainly do a better job as faculty in terms of helping them figure out how to navigate that once they're prof as professionals. Um, but I do think there's just a greater awareness in general, but certainly among our students of, of mental health and how important it is and its impact on um, how we navigate all the things that we do, including our work and our and our family lives, um, and then thinking about what Maureen said about um, systemic racism, 
I think that for me personally, that has changed. You know, I know that what I teach has evolved um, over the years. And um, I think students, I, I would hope that students also are, are seeing that, you know, that, that in a way that maybe they hadn't been exposed to it in the same way that, uh, you know, even like Maureen said five years ago, um, would have been exposed to. And I know that when I teach professional development and we talk about interviewing, for example, um, a, a question that comes up in interviews now that I don't think was very prevalent before was the issue of, of diversity. And, and maybe there were questions, you know, five years ago about how, you know, how do you work with diverse populations, something more general, but I think questions now are more specific and ask, ask um, potential employees to really consider whether they can be advocates or how they're, you know, what they know about their own biases. I mean, they're just yeah. a little bit more specific. Um, and again, I think some of that's just based on, you know, that evolution, you know, it's slow, it's slow, 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 but it, I, I do think that's, it, it does give me hope. Like when I hear my students respond to questions that I ask them about those issues, there has, there has been a change in, in the way they think about those things, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, that is hopeful. We need all the hope we can get yeah. <laughs> with regard to those issues. Um, and we moved into discussing mentoring. One of the things I wanted to ask well, so I'm in the middle of recording podcast interviews from Kent State alums. When by the time this goes out, a couple of interviews have already been released featuring your great alums. Um, and, but then we have um, several additional alumni interviews coming up. And they've all so far, <laughs> they've just had the best things to say about both of you. I have to say, <clears throat> they have just raved about Kathy and Maureen, <laughs> um, uh, and, and how integral you were toward their um, um, experience, their positive experience in the program at Kent State, and then um, their professional development. So, um, you know, since you do a lot of work in this space, both directly with students and you've actually um, published in the area, um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share anything that stick, stands out to you that you have learned about mentoring students towards success in our field. Um, so kind of what advice would you offer to either students or faculty based on your own experience working with students at our field? I would say that mentoring, it's not just about talking about classes, what courses to take or even career. I mean, those are obviously important factors to consider when mentoring, but it's also about role modeling and then also talking about when you're not being a good role model. So I think Kathy would probably agree that she and I are not always the best at balance. I shouldn't say balancing, but at navigating our work boundaries. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we are on the clock more than we should be. And so I talk to my students about that and I tell them, okay, you may not hear from me this weekend. 
And this is me setting boundaries and talking to them, mentoring to them. You need to set boundaries so that you are refreshed when you come back to work the next week and, and things like that. So mentoring is, it's not just about the coursework in the career, but it's, it's role modeling, but then also talking about things that where you're not being a good role model, but it's about compassion. It's about helping the students not only build skills, whether it be interviewing skills or what have you, but also recognizing the skills that they have learned so that they can articulate that as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I would, I would say um, uh, we talked about, or Maureen mentioned balance, and um, I always make the argument that it's balance doesn't exist. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's in part to another study that we did Um, around that same time where we were interviewing uh, alumni in more in-depth and we talked to them about work-family and and work-family balance specifically and what that looked like. And one of the themes that we identified was that they talked about this, the teeter-totter of work and family and came up with this idea that, you know, work and family isn't about their balance. Isn't something that you're really trying to achieve because balance, it's so easy to become off balance. Um, But that sometimes things are going to be more focused on your family. And then sometimes things are going to be more, more focused on work and that can happen. That shift can happen within the day, but it can also happen within your life. And, you know, when you're um, if you fall into sort of, the traditional college age spectrum where you might not have um, a partner or you might not have um, dependents when you're, and of course, obviously lots of students don't fall into that, but if you do, then it might be that you can spend a lot more time on work at that point in your life than you can, then you're going to feel like you can later on. Um, And then we talk just about how, they're already learning how to navigate work and other kinds of obligations because they already have tremendous number of obligations. Uh, I don't know about where you're at, but our students, a lot of our students are, I, I would say the majority of them are working a lot of hours while they finish their education and, and at the yeah. same time. And then they add an internship or a practicum and, you know, uh, their, and then their family obligations, and they may be caring for someone, whether it's their own children or um, um, someone else in their family. And so they already are, they already have some of those skills and helping them recognize that they're already doing that. Um, I, 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 this is just a real passion point for me, I think, because so many, so many of our, so many of our students right now are kind of maligned more generally about these, you know, young people not knowing, you know, <laughs> things or this, this new generation or, or whatever it is. And it's not even that I can't sometimes fall into that myself. But I think um, when I actually think about our students, I, they've got a lot going on <laughs> right now. And they're already doing some of these things. And so helping them kind of see that they're, you know, in contrast to that message where they say, well, wait till you're in the real world, which I hate hearing because they're already in the real world. And, yeah. um, 
in contrast to that, they're, they're in some ways, and some of our alumni said this, they have fewer things because instead of doing school work and family, they're doing work and family. And it's, it, it's just a different schedule that they have, a different way of, and so that's one of the things we talked a lot about in professional development is kind of preparing for how to navigate those obligations and to not try to make it about balance so much. That, that was really long-winded and I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I enjoyed it. I actually, as you were, well, first of all, it was very relevant to my life. So I want to just <laughs> selfish level. It was very, very reaffirming to myself this week as I'm sitting here. I'm ill this week. My entire household is ill. We've never all been ill at the same time, but I, I thought about what you said. And um, yes, it is so easy when you think about a seesaw. It's so easy to for that to become off balance uh, in any slight direction. Um, but I kind of think about it as this wave. You just got to learn to ride the wave. I know yeah. this week felt like we've just sort of my husband and I, we just felt like we've just sort of army crawled through our work week and just, you know, getting the most extreme things done that we needed to get done while we're ill, caring for an ill child. Um, but there are other weeks where, you know, we're working all weekend. So and you just have to just learn how to ride the wave and just um, not fight the wave and go where it needs to go. <laughs> um, so I think that that's much more achievable than trying to find a perfect balance every week because it's just not possible. And it's okay. And it's, it's not yeah. normal. I think it is another good point. It's that's just life. It's going to teeter or totter one side to the other. And that's like you said, riding the wave. I think that's another good analogy. Yeah. Yes. And then too, when I think about some of the best ideas that I've had with regards to teaching, like, or kind of innovative ideas, well, even this podcast, you know, any sort of really creative idea, you know, it has taken some time where, you know, maybe um, I've had lighter work days, you know, where I actually had that time and that space to actually truly think. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I, I don't really have that luxury when we are in um, a, um, when we're in a, one of these major push times during the year, like at the beginning of the semester or the end of the semester, that's not as possible right. um, or midterm. That's not as possible. It's also not as possible when I have a lot of things going on at home. Um, but during these lulls, you know, where you've got kind of calm waters, then you get some really cool ideas and then you can enact them um, when needed. So mm -hmm. I mean, you're right. It's not normal. It's normal that you're going to have an ebb and flow. That's just the way of life. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one other thing I wanted to add when, because you mentioned something or to, to mention anything that other faculty may um, find helpful. And that is something that I didn't do when I first started advising students and mentoring students is, you know, I kind of gave the, the canned speech. Here are some careers you could do, but it didn't take me long to realize the value of really listening and hearing what the unique students' interests are. And so in other words, I kind of view mentoring as very mutual. I'm learning from the student and I'm hearing, okay, wow. And I'm gonna give this example of a former student that she had all a lot of her research or her papers in different classes that she took with me, all kind of centered around the same topic of, 
um, AIDS or sexual health or, and things like that. So when she was getting close to graduation, she came to my office and we were talking about potential grad school opportunities. And I said, you know, public health, they have this social science component. And so you would be a really good fit with your interest in HIV AIDS and sexual health, but then also having the family studies background. And if I hadn't really listened to her interest in, and thought about that, I would have, I mean, I would have not done my job as well as I could have. She may have obviously come to that conclusion on her own, but I just think it's important for mentors to realize the value of listening and learning from the students to help guide their, their own mentoring. That's a very good point. Like being attuned to what's really going on with the students right. in their lives in general, but then also with regards to their interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one, um, oh yeah, one of your recent, one of our recent podcasts, I think it features, uh, oh wait, no, I might be getting them mixed up, but <laughs> one of, I think all of, all of the um, faculty there at Kent State sort of pointed this one particular student into social work. Um, and it's because, well, the student did her due diligence in sharing her interest in forming relationships with the faculty members, but then the faculties were really attuned and paid attention. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's related to your example. Like, yeah, you, you saw that she had this interest in public health based on all the courses that she chose and you were able to steer her in that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something you just mentioned, Erica, the idea that all of us were kind of on the same page for that student. And, and obviously that doesn't happen with every student and the students themselves right. have to do some reaching out to, to us in order for us to really be able to help them. But I think asking each other um, for help, like we're, I think in our program area and, and hopefully this is the case for a lot of program areas in, in family science, but I, we're pretty collaborative. And so we are, you know, if we don't know, if we don't have the resources or the knowledge about a particular area, you know, we know who in our program might, or we can at least ask them to see if they know, um, you know, where to point a student and that kind of thing. And so the idea that, you know, a student doesn't have to just have one mentor or when you're mentoring someone that you're the only person who's mentoring them, you know, you want to want to help them make connections and, and network with other mentors, you know, whether that's other mm-hmm. academics, other faculty, or even folks who are out in the, uh, out, out working, maybe doing, you know, internships, supervision, or um, that, that kind of work, but just being able to point people to um, other mentors, additional mentors, I guess. And one of the things that I think we've been pretty successful in, in a lot of our classes, not just professional development, um, but that where we bring our own alumni back into the classroom to talk to current students. And, And that's been made more challenging somewhat with the pandemic and also made easier because you can do zooms and, and that kind of thing, but, um, helping them, you know, start that networking or continue that networking with when you have those alumni come in so that they can see, okay, these people were where I was sitting and now are doing work that I want to be doing in the future. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, anytime we've ever brought our alumni back, um, it's always been very welcome as well. Yeah. Um, And I think that's such a good point, helping them to empowering students to kind of um, build their own network as well and pointing them in the right direction. 
Um, and if you have the connections, making those connections. Um, that's such a great point because I know definitely people did it for me. Um, and I'm sure we could all say that yeah. and, um, it's beneficial. Um, also, I wanted to um, mention, Kathy, your earlier point about the fact that, yeah, many of our students, I know that's the same University of Houston as well. Many of our students are already working and they already, you know, are imbalancing uh, incredible loads with working, going to school, many of them caring for children or caring for parents or caring for, you know, all sorts of people. And this was even before the pandemic. Right. Now we have the pandemic on top of all of this. So um, I just wanted to echo what you said earlier about that. Um, they're definitely already in the, in the real world, most of them. And then even those who are more quote unquote traditional college students, um, a lot of them have obligations on campus. They're really active on campus as well. So mm -hmm. they have just other things going on in their lives. They have families as well. Um, even their family that, the, you know, of origin. Yeah. And so. I, I don't, I don't think we can underestimate how much the pandemic is impacting mental health either. So I think not yeah. only are students coming in sort of more aware of their own mental health challenges and um, how to, how to manage those. I think the pandemic has had this added sort of layer um, for people that we'll be seeing for a long time, I think. A long time. It's one of those things. I don't think that we fully understand the uh, pressure that we're under right. and we won't for a while until we emerge from it sometime mm -hmm. in the, unfortunately it's looking like distant future. Yeah. Um, so that's a really great point. Um, so thinking back over the years, can you, um, and if you can't think of any, it's fine, but <laughs> if you can think of um, some of the most memorable student successes that you've seen over the years, if you have any that you can think of that you feel like sharing, um, I'd love to hear those. Okay. Uh, well, obviously it's when one of our students really finds their niche. For example, I've had a student, she was, you know, she was a decent student, you know, good, good student, nothing, you know, outstanding or anything like that, but she was fun to have in class and was a decent student. Then she went to grad school and she went into a particular program that's um, a little bit different from ours, uh, but still related as many other fields are. She blossomed. She really came into her own. She was just she was working with um, veterans who had traumatic brain injuries. And she when she was done with her graduate, her master's degree, she was getting job offers all over and she just had a passion. So it's really cool to see that. That's one of the successes when whatever the student ends up doing that if they really blossom and Kathy will probably give examples of may give examples of that. Also, I'm going to give a couple other examples of memorable successes, and that's when the student becomes the teacher, <laughs> when our students literally or figuratively become the teacher. So I have a former student that I have grown to contact when I need resources. She is fabulous with giving me, oh, you should check this resource out for, you know, whatever it may be that I'm looking for. And then I, we have other students who've gone to grad school and then they they teach for us and they are phenomenal. And so that's another success um, that, that we enjoy. And then Kathy, do you want me to zip it? I don't know if you want to mention <laughs> anything else. Um, yeah. I mean, this very similar kinds of, um, 
success stories and that those, those people um, who kind of find their niche and really um, explore that and um, like you said, blossom or flourish in, in their careers. It's so fun to, to observe and, and to, to see that happen and to have them contact us and to let us know, you know, what they're, what they're up to and, and how that's working for them. And, you know, Facebook isn't being used as, as often as it was uh, for a variety of reasons, but those students who are, who graduate and are become alumni and, um, contact me on there. I, I love being able to watch them in their careers um, when they post, mm-hmm. you know, new um, successes. And a lot of those students are students who really found kind of what they were looking for. Um, I can think of an example, you know, of someone who, uh, oh, I, I think can think of multiple examples of actually people who had started their own nonprofits after working for a while um, after graduation and other people who have, you know, gone in a, a, you know, a different direction, but are so passionate about that direction. And I see that as a success. And um, we also talked about those students who use their own life challenges to kind of spur them on, you know, whether that was the death of a parent or uh, an illness um, that they um, were challenged by or um, uh, their own, uh, again, I've mentioned this multiple times, their own mental health challenges where they've, you know, seen how they were affected by that. And then that's taken them into a direction where they're, um, really passionate about helping others in that same situation. And then as Maureen mentioned, this idea of, you know, them becoming the teachers, I, I just find it so exciting when I, I'm like, there's such leaders in their jobs and their roles and, and in their communities and seeing them as leaders, it, it's just, it's exciting um, for me mm-hmm. to, to witness that. And I'm, I'm so impressed and so inspired by their enthusiasm and then I lately we have had more students who are going who are going into more social justice kinds of areas um and that's really exciting to me too that they Mm -hmm. that they found that um that they found that as their niche and they are advocating you know whether they're um you know campaigning for, for, you know, politically or whether they're, you know, helping with policy issues or uh, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. It just, it's exciting to see them in those roles as well. And then I, I, oh, go ahead. No, please go ahead, Kathy. I I was just going to add one more that I, I don't know that faculty often think about, but I think that Facebook has sort of opened my eyes to, and that is, I get to see them be successful with their family relationships as well. Mm-hmm. And um, even when they're navigating some challenges, you know, even when they're, you know, going through a divorce or um, those kinds of issues, but, but primarily just seeing them be successful with those relationships and, you know, parenting their own children. I don't know that we think of that often as faculty, but it's such it's such a joy for me to see them implementing the things that we talk about 
<laughs> in classes uh, about, you know, building family strengths and um, uh, parenting, parenting, uh, you know, children effectively and um, navigating uh, their relationships with their um, aging parents, um, all of that. It's, I feel very lucky to, to be able to witness that. Oh, I want to give, well, two things. One, I wanted to give a couple of specific examples that Kathy was talking about earlier when it comes to students using their own life challenges that contribute to their success. And one of those is one that we always refer to as one of our, our star, I do, one of our star alumni, I just adore her. She, um, her mother had passed away of breast cancer when she, I think it was, I don't know if it was before she was one of our students or during her undergraduate, I can't remember, before, okay. And she, for many years now, she has had, she developed her own nonprofit that's very successful and it's named after her mother and it's known in the community and it's just so amazing. And she's been recognized publicly for her work and doing that, um, that charitable function that she and the organization she has. And then we've had other students who, again, I think a lot of times, Erica, you probably find this too. A lot of our students come into family studies, child and family studies fields because of their own experiences. So we yes. had students come in who they may have experienced domestic violence in their families. And so that's another example. I can name a couple of students who have experienced that in one way or another in their family. And now they are working either in the field or um, like working at shelters, domestic violence shelters, or doing advocacy. So those are just some specific examples I wanted to tag on to Kathy um, talking about the challenges contributing to their, their life challenges contributing to the student's career success later. And then another thing I wanted to mention about some memorable student successes is this is just that notion when we see one of our students really own as part of their identity that they are HDFS or family studies. And an example of that I will give is a recent example of one of our undergraduates went into a different graduate program Again, it was more as periphery, but it was, you know, certainly related. And he was doing great in that program. And he came to me and said, you know what? It's just not me. How can you look at this particular topic without looking at the family? And I just wanted to hug him. I'm like, yes. <laughs> he, he decided, even though he was doing great in that master's program, he decided to apply to a marriage and family therapy master's program. And that's where he's enrolled now, but it's just so rewarding to see that, that what they've learned is part of who they are now as a professional. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's so fun that he recognized that, um, that his, that lens was missing from where he was at and that it was important enough to him. And I, uh, for me, when I see that, that's, you know, I feel particularly like they're successful when they can see it. But I do think our, um, so many of our alumni use that lens sometimes without even recognizing that that's what's happening. And, exactly. and I, I, I see it. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yes, that's because you're HDFS. And it's exciting to me. I mean, I, 
I, you know, I have students who, um, or we, we have students who are, who became alumni, um, who are now doing photography and they do photography with, um, families. And I think to myself, there is something unique about having a photographer who has an HDFS background when you're, right. when you're, you know, having been in the art world, you know, when you're putting relationships together and trying to capture those relationships, I just think it's a really unique lens to have. Um, and I, I think, you know, we have nurses, um, alumni who are nurses that I think if I have a health crisis, I want my nurse to have an HDFS background. Uh, we have ministers, you know, and I, if, if I, um, was going to have a minister, then I want them to have that HDFS background. And that's, that to me is, is so one of the reasons our students are so successful is because they take that with them. Um, when, when, whatever, whatever they do. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, unfortunately, everyone can't have the same background. <laughs> I mean, even though this is a field we all love, um, but it, but it, it really um, speaks to this piece that we need a variety of lenses in the world. You know, we, we need um, these uh, diverse perspectives. Um, you know, this is why, one of the reasons why interdisciplinary re, um, projects and research, are, they have a strength and that, you know, you have various lenses, various voices coming from diverse perspectives. And um, I, I feel like our field is, has a strength that's unique because it is interdisciplinary. The, the field itself is interdisciplinary by nature, but then it's also bringing a unique perspective. Um, and yes. that I, I think that it's, it's cool. Like, yes, we are a field that's in its adolescence, um, but I'm glad that it's becoming a more prominent voice in various um, different professions and even in people's personal lives. As we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? And um, do you have any lasting words of advice or encouragement for students or new professionals in the field? My advice to students and new professionals is to, this is going to bring it full circle to the beginning of this podcast, find your people, because I would definitely not be as happy in my career if, if I hadn't found my Kathy Walker, so who has similar interests. So find your Erica Jordan, find your Kathy Walker, because not only will you have someone that is like-minded, you'll also have someone who gives you a different perspective. And hopefully someone, like in my case, I experienced someone who who makes me up my game, if you will, someone who who makes me um, or challenges me. And um, so find find your people. Yeah, I, I would I would echo that. And um, it's, you know, when we were talking about work and family, you know, and one of the reasons I don't like the word balance is because we often think of balance as coming if we keep those two things separate and um maureen is an an auntie i mean she's uh um aunt Rini to to my daughter and so clearly those boundaries you know some of us want those boundaries a little bit more specific <laughs> too with our colleagues but um i i do think i do think it has been just a a real 
you know, gift to, to be working um, with colleagues who I am as, as close to, particularly Maureen, obviously, but um, just more generally, just people finding your people, finding those. I think I mentioned, mentioned when I came back from that job interview and said, these, I, these people get me, um, or even, you know, just going to the conferences, whether it's uh, NCFR, I, I just recently went to my first um, Family Science Association conference, and it was virtual, and I loved it. And it, I just thought, wow, these, these people are really interested in the same things I'm interested in. And it was yeah. exciting. And so definitely, I would echo that. I, I would also say to students and new professionals, both to be curious. Um, for me, you know, it doesn't, and I, and this is so hard for students, particularly when, you know, it's easy for me to say that the grades don't matter, you know, the points, especially the specific points don't matter because I just want them to learn, right? And right. that's easy for me to say. And I, and I get that on one level, but on the other level is if you can, just show me that you're you actually are care about learning this like you're interested you're curious I think that being open to whatever it is you're learning and experiencing will just help you so much even as you begin begin that new job whatever job it is because you're there's just something about that having that curiosity and wanting to know more and understand something better that's going to help you build those skills that you need to do what you're doing. That's great advice. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing um, your wisdom and your time with me today. I'm sure that this is going to be an enjoyable episode for students and faculty alike. So I just really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you for having us. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the HDFS Careers Podcast. If you have recommendations for HDFS or other family science alumni to interview, please reach out to me at hdfscareers.com. Don't worry if they are not working in a job that would normally be considered in the field. I'm interested in hearing a variety of stories, especially if they are working outside of academia. If you like this podcast and want other people to be able to find it, please rate it and review it in iTunes or share it on social media. Until next time, keep exploring your future possibilities.